0: Hello, I'm Ann Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Oh, we haven't even said anything yet. This is going very well. Um, I'd like to welcome you all here. It's um, lovely to be here on Gadigal land and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this place and all of the great women of the Eora Nation who have for many thousands of years, used this place to hang around and chat about food and overfood. So, um, and I'm extremely excited to be able to introduce to you this great woman, Asma Khan, who I've got to know a little bit over the last week, but I already know a lot about from reading her book. And... Do you know, I've done so many of these author interviews at writers' festivals over the year, and I don't, years, and I don't think I've ever, ever before arrived at a session without a single question written down on a piece of paper. And I am going to explain why that is, and I promise then I will let Asma talk, but it's because you have done such a great job of communicating yourself in this book and telling the story of yourself and your mother that. I felt I knew the shape of you so well by the end of the book that I know exactly what I want to talk to you about, and um, I can't wait to do that. I'm not going to introduce Asma by going through her CV because you will find it all out in this session, Okay? I'm going to, um, first of all, say welcome, and then I'm going to ask you to start by reading the
1: foreword to your book. Thank you. Thank you very much. So uh, I need to show you the picture so that you know the context. Uh, this is, this, on this side is my mother, and that's an aunt, and this is the dedication of the book. I heard Amu's heartbeat even before I saw her face. I knew her voice and recognized her laughter even before she held me in her arms. Our deep bond began unseen by others in the womb and is the anchor of my life. This book celebrates the relationship between mother and daughter. It's a homage to my mother, who I call Amu. The picture opposite was taken at a family wedding when Amu was five months pregnant. Everyone in the wedding told my mother how it looked as if she was carrying a boy. This is very much you know, this Asian thing, or oh, your, st- your stomach looks round or whatever. <laughs> so all these kind of old wives tell you that, oh, you're carrying a boy. So that's what happened to my mother at this family wedding. Very public announcements by everybody, definitely carrying a boy. And, And this boy that she was supposedly carrying was going to be the heir to the family name. It was not a boy, it was me, the second daughter. Who was going to grow up and become the heir to all of Ammo's recipes. In this book I celebrate a woman who is fiercely independent in her thinking, a woman ahead of her time who managed to gently shake the patriarchy and was unafraid to be different from those around her, becoming a female founder of a food business. Amu's footprints are too big for me to match them, but I'm following her path and using food to celebrate my family's culinary heritage and culture. I also use food to change the narrative of how women cooks are perceived at home and in restaurant kitchens. I wrote this book to share the life lessons recipes I have learned from Amu. I want to pass on the legacy that I've inherited from Ammu to others. Now separated by oceans, uh, I still feel Ammu's hand on me. Whenever I cook in the aromas of the spices that infuse my kitchen, I feel her presence. When I was young, my father would tell me that heaven lay at the feet of my mother. I know it does, and she is forever going to be my guiding light, my Ammu. Sorry. <laughs>
0: Now, spoiler alert, that um, child that was meant to be a boy um, grew up to run an incredibly famous and successful restaurant in London called Darjeeling Express, and it is a restaurant which turns on its head the assumptions about how restaurants work and who should work in them and who is qualified. It is, I think I'm right, um, a restaurant that is staffed entirely by women and not by women who have come up through commercial kitchens and been shouted at by Gordon Ramsay. Yes. So, I'm just setting that scene and we will return to present-day Darjeeling Express. But for now, I want to go right back to the moment where you were born
1: and your mother cried. Yes. She... I think it was her sense of having failed. Uh, She was one of five daughters she was made to feel that she'd let the entire family down by producing another girl. You know, at a time when every girl, every woman giving birth in that family, they were all having girls. And she did cry, I know, but I think that was momentary because after that I remember a childhood where she let me free, she let me be, and she loved me so much, she still loves me very much today. But she just let me be anything that I wanted to be. But yeah, she did cry when I was born.
0: And did you realize at the time that that maternal um, approach to you was unusual? And not of its time?
1: Yes, very unusual, especially because of the kind of child I was. I would play cricket the whole day. I hated wearing things like I'm wearing now. And I, I really wanted to be a boy. And maybe it was, I was trying to be the son she never had. I was a tomboy. I absolutely detested having to go and make small talk with relatives. <laughs> uh, because they all told me I was dark and fat. Why am I going to go talk to them? <laughs> but uh, I, I, it was, so, And Ammu just let me be. She didn't force me to conform to do things that everybody was doing. And it's remarkable because I forced my kids, my two boys, to do things which they don't <laughs> want to do and I kind of screaming and crying, I'm like all Asian mother on them and I dragged them ca- crying and kicking to events that they don't want to come to. She didn't do it and she let me play on the streets. And I'm sure that a lot of people, would, everyone would come, especially you know, my distant relatives to say, She's already so dark and she's very fat and no one's going to marry her and you know, stop her from playing on the street. She's playing with all kinds of undesirables on the street in Calcutta. Never, ever did Ammu come and say... And I just took it for granted though, yeah? She's not stopping me. Now that I have kids of my own and that I'm not as large-hearted as Ammu, <laughs> I force my kids to do things they don't want to do, I'm just amazed that she was so generous with me. You sound like you
0: were a bit of a handful as a kid. <laughs> yeah. So, and your mum like ran her own catering business. Like she was quite a an accomplished businesswoman and a bloody excellent cook, right?
1: So did you take that for granted as well? Yeah. The quality of the food. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like all kids, uh, you just think that your mother has been that your, you haven't been born for your mother. Your mother has been born to look after you. Yeah. But you didn't ever feel like,
0: I want to learn how to make that. Because you didn't cook. You weren't, like, you didn't learn to cook when you were a kid. Yeah.
1: No, I, I, I just ate. And everybody <laughs> fed me. And everybody loved feeding me. I was very enthusiastic. I, I realised very quickly, if you praise people's food and you show great enthusiasm and you ate the whole plate up... They'd give you more. And so I was, I was very smart. And, you know, and see, now I pay the price. My sister, who didn't do all of this, is super, super slim. And she looks 10 years younger than me. But it's, uh, and she's older than me. But it's, uh, yeah, so I ate. I enjoyed eating. And I didn't even think a time would come. I thought I was going to marry some prince. Sure. And, you know, I was going to have an arranged marriage at 18. I was going to marry a prince. I have lots of cooks. And everybody take care of me. I never thought that I would have to cook. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know how to cook. And she didn't also cook, teach me how to cook, because she knew I just wanted to eat. Yeah. I don't want to do any work. <laughs> <laughs> Rightio. So, let me just, just
0: fill me in on how, I mean, somebody did marry you in the end, yeah. to the shock of all the uncles or whatever.
1: Yeah. Um, how did that happen? <laughs> it, it's, it was an arranged marriage, and I, I just do need to clarify this. An arranged marriage is different from a forced marriage. Arranged marriages are like, you know, speed dating, Asian style, but with all the family involved. And uh, and so it's it's everybody has an opinion and everybody is taking so imagine I was telling you, Oh, this guy's okay, this guy's not nice and whatever. So yeah, it's it so he he didn't know what he was going for, but I knew and he turned up thinking I was gonna help him, as a journalist, that I was gonna help him with some interview, and I told him, Do you know that this is the arrangement I set up? He got up and left. He was so horrified. But yeah, but we married three months later. So I'm very I persuaded him that it was a really good idea to, to marry me. And uh, yeah, he, and I really always wanted to marry someone who was intelligent. Yeah. I was surrounded by Duffos who were like feudal, you know, kids in my family who are, you know, just raised like the kind of the blessed son. And made to feel so special. This was not how my brother was raised. My brother, and my mother was very she treated all of us equally, and RF was wonderful. Because your but
0: mother did end up having a son yeah, after yeah. you. I,
1: so oh, I had God. a younger brother. And but all these boys who grew up thinking that they are so, you know, they're they're just born to rule. I didn't have the time for day for them. So yeah, but I married I married a very liberal academic who was a professor. He was teaching economics at the University of Cambridge, very intelligent and very, very left-wing, very compassionate and who understood about equality and rights. And that really impressed me. Even now, even, you know, th- I'm still married to him 30 years later. I, li- I listen to his lectures and it impresses me that you know, he talks about things that matter. And you moved to Cambridge. Yes. How was that? Terrible. <laughs> Cambridge, I don't know, I mean who put, put your hands up those who've been to Cambridge in winter. <laughs> okay, big difference. You <laughs> go to Cambridge on a tourist bus, Summer, it's like heaven on earth. In winter, it's hell. And hell, the Quran and the Bible all talks about burning fires, everything. Cambridge is frozen, it's frigid. The little, little river, frozen. And the wind cuts through you like a knife. It's so, so terrible because it's damp. It's near the fence, which is like a kind of swamp. Uh, I think it's like a swamp, but it's just humid and cold. Yeah, you freeze to death. And nothing all the trees are all dead, and everyone is dead, and it's just like, really, really, I was so shocked. I came from Calcutta, really buzzing, full of greenery, I got married, I was, came wearing shoes like this, which I can I, I only had shoes like this, actually it's true, I only had shoes like this, because each shoe was made to match my outfit, and my mother gave me a trousseau, I had 100 outfits when I got married. Yeah, we paid huge excess baggage, and I had shoes. <laughs> and I couldn't even walk in the streets. All cobblestones. Yeah, it was terrible. So you had to get a puffer jacket, and well, yeah, that is... And yeah, for cobblestones, I had to get shoes. And it took me a while to get used to this, to my situation. It was a massive uprooting. Oh, yes. It's not like what it is now. I mean, 30 years ago, when you left home, it was, it was like a bereavement. And how was the food? I don't know what was worse, the weather or the food. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, very close fight between the two. Food was terrible, and it was like, I just, I remember my first meal at High Table. So in Oxford Colleges and Cambridge Colleges, the High Table where all the fellows sit. So my husband was a fellow, and they occasionally invite guests, and I was the new bride, so I was invited. And they made to sit next to the master. I thought I was gonna pass out. That cabbage looked like it had been boiled from the last century. <laughs> and, and you know, at some point, someone should have said stop <laughs> to everything. And I don't know, there's like, I just kept thinking, you know, is it rude? There were all these silverware on the table, which they do, they put out all their silverware. And actually, Frank, there's, I wasn't sure what had salt in it because the food didn't have salt in it, but I don't want to grab something that was like, empty or inappropriate. So I had this entire meal with no salt. You couldn't put salt because I was too, you know, I was, was very embarrassed and wasn't sure what silver to pick up. I just about figured out how to use all the cutlery. So I was just terrified. I came around and told my husband, what is this? And this is, it was so bad. English food has got a lot better. Thank God for immigrants. Because <laughs> really... Uh, <laughs> What, yeah. was the, what was the British food stuff that horrified you the most? Going to an Indian restaurant. Oh. If it is possible, that could be worse than what I ate in college, yes. Because it's, I didn't recognise the food. Everything was dyed in colours. Obviously it was bright orange and the rice was bright green and, and they call the rice royal rice. I come from a royal family and never in my life seen rice like this. <laughs> so it was just yeah, a very, very, very like sweet. Everything had cream in it and so sweet and swimming in key, And I just couldn't understand what kind of food this was. And
0: um, you weren't much of a cook yourself, so um, was, were home meals a bit stressful?
1: I think I have to rank it third in all the bad things right. that were happening to me. <laughs> but the thing is that, of course, that hurt more because every day I had to eat my husband's cooking, which was very, very poor. Very... <laughs> Uh, and also, he just made the same thing every day. And the worst thing is, he never ate with me. He would make me this completely substandard food and leave me with it and then go off to college and have all his fancy food uh, in, with all the masters of college because he was tutor. He had to eat in college. So it was... And also, I'd never eaten any meal alone. For mm. me, meal times is, you know, the clan on the table, just lots of laughter. I'm so lucky. And for all of those who are in this... Hall, who are in their 50s, know that beautiful time when there was no television, no mobile phone, kids were not looking at tablets, that everybody looked at the food and talked to each other and they made eye contact. And in our tables, we, you know, at mealtimes, you know, at lunchtime, we spoke about what we are gonna eat for dinner. And dinner, everyone would say, What's, how are we gonna make leftovers for breakfast? <laughs> so we would have kebabs for breakfast. You know, that it, it was this conversation around food and politics and cricket a lot of talk about cricket, and the latest Bollywood films, and it was just everything. And anyone who was having a hard day, everyone picked it up like that. There was no question of you going off into your room. Now I can't drag my child to come out and eat on the table with us. He's in his room. He's eating in his room. This is such a crazy idea. My God, my my father would have freaked if any child didn't turn up at the table, when they said dinner is served... The 13 cats in my house and all kids. All turned up <laughs> because everyone's dinner was served. You didn't dare not turn up, you know. You all ate at the same time. So, Mushtaq would just cook this meal and leave me with it and has to fiddle around with it. But I didn't want to tell him it was so bad because if he stopped cooking, I didn't know how to cook. I was starved. So, you
0: were lonely, you were hungry, you were understimulated, you were cold. And... And then you had kids. Yeah. So... How did you get out of this pit of loneliness? What happened? How did you recover?
1: I started cooking and in the aromas of the food, which I always say, I felt um, my presence of Ammu next to me. I felt I went home and for that moment that I cooked and when I fed that food to other people, it made me feel that not just I had gone home, but those people who had fed, who don't even know what my home is, who are not the color of skin I am, who are different cultures. In their silence, I also felt they went home. There's something about food that is cooked with a yearning for home. You taste it, but you, I cannot explain to you what that ingredient is. It's that in missing ingredient that is not there in any recipes, but it's there. This yearning for home for those of us who cook feeling that emptiness when we cook we bring that whole love into that dish and I know I I probably did that because people would tell me that they felt there was something so comforting and so emotional in that food and I realized I had I had a gift I could cook and I could make people happy and then I eventually figured out that I would like to feed more people but you didn't see anyone like me accented Muslim, immigrant, running a restaurant in central London. It didn't exist. You know, you can't be what you cannot see. You couldn't even see someone like me on food media. There were white men cooking my food. There were just white people on food media, food television, talking about Indian food, of how exotic it was. And I didn't even get what they were trying to explain. And I, can't, I didn't feel any connection they didn't communicate to me what my food was. But everyone thought these were great people talking about Indian food. So you're skipping ahead a little bit. I'm going to haul
0: you back to... Because you you, you you went home, didn't you, for a little while, and you learnt yes. from your mum, principally, how to cook all of these dishes. So what do you think she thought when this crazy daughter of hers turns up all sad, saying, look, perhaps I do need to know how to cook that biryani. Like...
1: Was she kind of smug about it? No. She's a very Asian mother about it. She doesn't communicate. She never communicated <laughs> before when I didn't know how to cook. I was just allowed to be what I am. When I came back, and said, I want to cook. She taught me. She taught me with that kind of serious, dedicated passion that mothers do. She taught me so well that when I went back, I could replicate every dish. The thing is that she doesn't doesn't write things. She never even wrote letters Mm. to me when I was in Cambridge. It was just, it's like oral history. She was telling me, it's like an old Beatles song. You know, once someone sings that to you and you know it, so someone, you can pick it up anywhere. So Amu would move from one dish to another dish, whatever. But it was like a rhythm. It was just explaining to me the rhythm of how to cook. And she's beautiful at that. And I used to spend a lot of time in the kitchen as a child because I wanted to be near Amu. I didn't watch what was happening, but clearly I understood because I knew the sounds that spices made. I knew aromas. So when she told me that, you know, when the mustard seeds pop, and everyone who uses mustard seeds, you know what I'm talking about. So you have to wait for the mustard seed to pop in the hot oil before you do anything. Putting in curry patta, the curry leaves, the infusion. How, at what point are the onions caramelized enough before they burnt? that thing that, you know, she would talk about that just to hit you over here, the aroma, and then you know it's ready. And all of that, she just had to tell me about them. I had vivid memories then of visually what it looked like, but I had memories of the aroma. And, yeah, I just learned very
0: fast. And when you returned to the UK with your bulging bag of recipes, you used food as a way to bribe people to be your friend, right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: because this is, again, an, another era. You know, you nobody will come and talk to you because they know you're not a student and you're not an academic. And in a Cam- Cambridge, in a college town, then you're nobody. They just ignore you. So I thought if I invite people for, for a meal to my house, they might like me, they might like my food, then they'd be my friend. I didn't have friends. and. It was just this thing of, I lived in college, but I was not part of college. So just a strange existence. And also my husband, as a professor, he was just a very serious person. Didn't find any of my jokes funny and (laughs) didn't like the music I liked and was just different from me. And so I had no one to talk to. And I felt very, I felt very lonely, but also thought that this is my life. I don't have the option to go back. I need to make a life here. And the f- first thing you need to do is make friends. So I cooked to bribe people to become my friend. <laughs> and they're still my friends, some of, some of them from Cambridge.
0: And slowly you started turning this skill of yours into a business, right? Yeah.
1: Tell us about that. I wanted to feed people. And as I would mentioned earlier, I knew that... Uh, You didn't see people like me, so there was no way that I could do a restaurant or anything. So I started inviting people to my home when my husband wasn't there. I didn't lie to him. I just didn't tell him. So he... So, yeah, lying is haram. Yeah, it's bad. You shouldn't lie. But you don't need to tell everyone everything in life. (laughs) And so he would go away on these long trips and think that everything was okay. The moment he left, all the tables came out and there was cures and lots of strangers turned up to sit around his study. But everybody knew, everybody knew that they should never, if they ever see him, mention that they came to his house. And so they all knew that. And because they also knew that they'd never again be able to come and taste my biryani. So I told everybody, you come, If anyone mentions to Mushtaq, you're banned. For life. You will never see me, you'll never see Biryani again. So, never ever did anyone speak. We kept this quiet, it's quite incredible, especially since half my customers are Asians. We are the worst people. We are the worst people to keep secrets. And, yeah, everybody met him and everyone acted, and didn't even act in a silly way. They just acted like, yeah, normal conversation. Absolutely, obviously my biryani was very good because that was my kind of big thing on everyone's head, that you will never come back and eat. <laughs> so yeah, when he was away, I did, I did supper clubs and you know, I loved it, it was a great opportunity and I had a great time, but I obviously clearly traumatised my children who also lived in the house with me and who found it very difficult that there were strangers, like 65 strangers, in the house. 65? Oh, yeah. my God. I thought we were talking sort of a dozen tops. No, no, lots. Jesus. Okay. Lots of people and all sitting on foldable IKEA chairs that were okay. hidden in the loft.
0: And where were you picking up these people? Just,
1: like, word of mouth? Word of mouth, word of mouth. Initially, it was the brave women only who came. Lots of women came. Then they came with their partners. huh. And it was incredible. I, I didn't advertise and just people just turned up. So it was. it was really... Now I think back, you know, I would never go to somebody's house. Because, you know, what is that a really bad cook? you don't even have the option to leave. <laughs> but people did come. So,
0: just, I, you know, your husband's clearly an intelligent man. Yeah. But possibly not the sort of intelligence that says, why do we have 65 folding yeah.
1: plastic chairs? In the loft, yeah. In the loft. Yeah. No? Okay. No, because he didn't go into the loft. <laughs> he may have asked me what I did. I would have actually probably found a very smart answer. But I I, I like to, like, you know, wing it. So I hadn't planned my answer. Yeah. On the off chance that he would go up the lot. But then I hit the ladder. So there was no way he was going to go up. So the ladder was hidden forever. So it was okay. Okay. I planned
0: it. And like, if your kids were a bit more on the ball, they would have
1: um, blackmailed you with this insight. Yeah, my kids are sweet. They're really, really sweet. And they're, I mean, I, I really adore them. And I hope one day they will be proud of everything that I've done and, of, and that they allowed me that space. I've never thanked them, and no one's ever asked me this question before. So, yes, I'm, I'm actually grateful for my children for not crushing my dreams because they, they let me do this till it became too much, until my little one, who was a real protester, uh, then complained to my dad, and then everything just fell apart because everyone found out. So you've been indulged by your mother and
0: your sons. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. So what was your next move then, once you were busted for your supper club? Yeah.
1: I, I, moved to a, uh, I moved to a pub uh, in Soho. That's a very trendy pub, you know, with lots of kind of heavily pierced guys with leather, leather jackets, motorbikes, really people who you cross the road when you see, and you don't want to be on the same side of the road as them, especially when you look like me. But they were... This was their club and their hangout place, and no-one wanted to eat my food. At that time, like 15 years ago... Uh, Having Indian food in a pub in Soho was seen as really bizarre. We did have Thai food in some pubs, but like there were more in the residential areas like Richmond and in Hammersmith, but you didn't have them in central London. And I was extremely unsuccessful. I failed to sell any food. When I tried to give free food, they would tell me no. They didn't even want to have free food because then they felt obliged. I was very defeated, and it was very humiliating for me to come home every day and look at myself and think that nobody wants you and no one wants your food and you are not good enough. But I didn't want to give up. So I kept going every day and I kept not selling food till somebody sent uh, Faye Mashler, who was the, the, she she had just turned 70. In fact, she came to my my pub on the 70th birthday, she'd grown up in India, and someone told her, if you want to eat the food of your heritage, go to this pub. There's a girl cooking there who will remind you of home. And she wrote me this most amazing review. And, I mean, it was the lines outside, the queues, including all these biker guys who didn't want to eat my food. Uh, yeah, I didn't charge them. I told them, you know, you broke my spirit. Don't ever do this because... I'm okay now, but they were, they were wonderful to me. They still come to my restaurants because they understood that you know, their lack of trying to show some compassion could have destroyed me, it didn't. And yeah, I, I, I began in a pub, then I became very famous in London, and then the landlord of my first restaurant would come to the pub to eat, offered me my first restaurant, and then the rest is I became a restaurateur. I never wanted to be one, but no one would have come and offered me a restaurant. Hmm. And that's the big thing that, you know, there are too many gatekeepers. And women who are like me, I was in my 40s. I was 43 when I began Dashing Express. And never, I didn't even have a credit card. My mobile phone was on my husband's account because I got that as, as a student uh, when I was doing my PhD. I, I always feel that this is such a barrier to women women, who are seen as society, as older, as if we are less creative and less powerful and not bankable, you know nobody wants to risk giving money to us, giving property to us when it, you know, when you're a sole founder and but this landlord had seen me start from nothing he'd seen me nights and nights when no one was eating my food. He felt that that food should be eaten by others, so and that was a man, and he was actually Australian <laughs> that's the way, yeah, he was from Australia originally uh, and so. Yeah, and he opened the door for me, and I got my first restaurant. What did you decide
0: to do um, when setting up, having the opportunity to build your own place on your own terms? What did you decide that you wouldn't do
1: that conventional restaurants do? Well, for one, I was going to make it visible who was cooking. I had an all-female kitchen, and that was the all the women who had cooked in my house illegally, <laughs> hiding from husband. Uh, you know, and I've, so all these women now were going to be chefs. They were going to cook in my restaurant and an open kitchen, but also there was no hierarchy. And it was also a, a, a place of refuge for all women who felt that they had not been treated properly. So we, we didn't go and get male chefs. Uh, because they learned in culinary school. They never learned in kitchens with their mothers. How would they even understand when I tell, you, tell them that you need to hear the sizzle of the ghee with the dried chilies? They never heard that noise. I cannot communicate. I have no... And we don't I'm measuring scales. Someone tells me what something weighs. I have no idea. I can hold it in my hand. I weigh with my hands. I weigh with my eyes. We don't weigh anything. We don't time anything. Writing the cookbook was a challenge, but all the recipes worked because somebody sat and weighed and measured and timed everything. And my family bought fifty books on my first day. <laughs> because they said, Oh my god, finally we can <laughs> actually cook the family recipes. <laughs> but it was I, I didn't want this to be about power and that I am this great shiny chef, you know, and I'm so great. I'm this tormented genius who's No, it was a collective. It was always a collective, and we worked as a team. How does that... How does the restaurant
0: scene in London... I mean, I just want you to talk a little bit more about this gatekeeping idea. Like, how does it work? It always freaks me out, like, because I'm super interested in food and interested in food writing, and I like eating in restaurants, and it always just amazes me. I love that show, Chef's Table, which you're on. Very cool episode of Chef's Table, It's all like so many dudes. And cooking around the world is so commonly done by women and yet once you
1: start paying for it, it's more likely to be uh, dudes doing it. Why? It becomes a combat sport. (laughs) Men have made it into mortal combat in kitchens. And I think that I feel it's because food has always been, and for all these men who are cooking, their association is some feminine energy. The mother, the grandmother, the nan who you go to for Christmas, Easter, Diwali, Holy Eid. All of our festivals are linked to women and them feeding them. And they have made this into an absolutely testosterone-driven, toxic, violent male game. This is not a rugby match. You're not in the kitchen to tackle your one small, frail-looking female pastry chef, but they do that. This is what's happening. This violence against women, violence against you know, men as well, weaker men. You never find the head chef going and slapping the owner. Uh, No, they will pick on the weak. So this whole idea that it's only men, they are gatekeepers to the extent that I could not have, uh, if this landlord had not eaten in the pub where I just happened to be, I would never have been offered a, a restaurant. But I really understood the gatekeeping situation, when Chef's Table happened, I had Danny DeVito eating my restaurant every day. It was such a huge thing. I was packed, the whole of Hollywood, Bollywood is in my restaurant. It was, and it became very difficult for me to manage. It was a 50-seater restaurant, and also we didn't have storage. So we were dying, the whole day we were running around buying potatoes, (laughs) because we had nowhere to keep it. And I tried then, At, at that time when Chef's Table came out, and I was everywhere, my first book had come out, had you know, been very well received, to speak to landlords about moving out of Kingly Court, that small unit. And the one thing they kept telling me is that, oh, you know, we don't, it didn't work out. And then they kept asking me, do you have, have you got venture capitalist money? Have you got, you know, a business advisor? Do you have a business partner? They were asking me for the suit in my life. They, in the West, in the progressive, liberal West, I was being asked what I'm asked in the East, where is my suitable boy? And it was that. It's just that there's a veneer of respectability in the West, in those societies where they try and make it look like it's decent. But the prejudice is absolutely the same. And I hit that wall so hard, they didn't even show me a single place at all. And I had already paid my taxes. I had made so much money, it wasn't even funny. I mean, the whole, it's a small restaurant with low rent. And it just blew, I mean, after Chef's Table. And yet, nobody was willing to show me a restaurant in the West End that I could take. I had to wait for a pandemic. I had to wait for male, mainly white chefs to fail to be offered all this property. That landlord told me, sit in the car and I'll take you around West End. Tell me which restaurant you would like. Because they knew I was the only person who could fill a place up in a lockdown because I could post biryani, I could do takeaway, and I had a community around me, people would come to eat at my place, a takeaway, because I was community-minded. All these other chefs were, they all disappeared. So yeah, and I, it was, and I had to tell the landlord that, you know, this is the most humiliating thing, because I realize now that you only are speaking to me because the men have stepped out of the line. They're no longer your priority. It's like this chess game, and I, I said, you know, now, with the pandemic, all the pieces have been removed from the table. Now, you put me back as queen, because now I will tell you where I want to go. It was... <laughs> so, it, it really is so surprising, and I worry because, you know, I'm, I'm very well-known. I've been invited to the Sydney's Writers Festival. <laughs> I have this room full of people, and I, I I'm recognized I'm on television, I'm on Netflix, I'm everywhere. And yet I got complete pushback, and I'm very political. It took me a while to figure out. Oh my God, they're not giving this to me because I'm a sole female founder. That I'm, I'm at that time I was 45, 46. That they didn't trust me to take care of their property as if I'd run away. It was horrible, it was, I, I actually cried. I was like, I felt so humiliated And then I cried out of frustration because I realized this is happening every day to women in every culture, women with different colors of skin, you know, age, that women are being pushed back, they're being held back. And whenever anyone has told me that, oh, you know, it's like, you know, breaking the glass ceiling, no, I don't want to break the glass ceiling. I don't want to break anything. I want to break the whole building because (laughs) I want to flatten all those spaces that are blocking out women. It's so shocking that it is so deeply entrenched. Mm. And women don't talk about this. And women, when they become successful, act like men. And they also hold women back. So, yeah, it's a big problem. Okay, so um, tell me
0: how you seek revenge on this system every day. <laughs> I just would—I want to know what happens. I mean, like, because, you know, you've engineered success as your principal revenge, right? Yeah. But... You know, you've been asked to be on television. What do you use that profile for? How do you
1: use that now? Well, the thing is, for one thing that I don't do is if anyone asks me to join a panel, I will always ask who's on the panel. If I'm your one brown face, I ain't going. And also, I I suggest instead for them to invite a woman of different ethnicity. Because I think that, especially in, in, in England, You don't have African food being celebrated. Black women, you know, from different regions, Somalia, you know, Uganda, you do not have women. They are great home cooks, but you don't get them celebrated. So I refuse to go anywhere if it is, if I'm the only female. I'm very conscious I should not actually be the one person you tick a box and you get them in. Mm -hmm. I tick so many boxes. I'm, you know, don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. So I, I don't go, and I don't also do ads, and I don't do... I don't endorse things. If you look at my social media, I don't do any collaboration and partnership. I don't don't have time. I spend my entire time working on with hunger charities. I work with refugees. I work on gender equality. I I'm on the Mayor of London's business advisory board. I'm also a, a fellow at uh, an honorary fellow at Oxford University, and very soon I'm going to be a fellow. My law school took a time. They allowed Oxford to give me the fellowship before, but in my law school as well. Because I understand one thing, that for women, education is the key to success. And educational institutions are also male-dominated. The hierarchy, it all male, male, male on the top. You have a lot of females at the bottom. And I really need women to be able to break through that, students to come through. So I, I get involved with everything that has to do with breaking the bias but also, removing you know, the barriers. Some of these barriers are created culturally by ourselves. Even I do that to myself. I, I didn't charge for my supper clubs in the beginning, because I was scared that people wouldn't pay. I did it all for hunger charities. I lacked the confidence. And I thought that if they didn't like it, at least if they paid the money to charity, they're going to come and tell me you know, we didn't like the food. I'm heartbroken. So it's It's very tough. So I do all of this and I'm super excited and I know every day I live one day less. But I also know that when I die and I will not see the woman who comes in, I'm sowing a harvest, I will never reap. But in my death, a girl can walk into, a woman can walk into a room with a landlord or a banker and she can say my name and she can say Darjeeling Express. I had no one I could look at and mention when I wanted to create an all-female kitchen as a sole founder I wanted this great 2 listed massive building in Covent Garden they all hesitated all the suits were shaking at the idea of giving it to someone who looks like me but I will be dead but I will still be fighting because it's so important for me to communicate this whole idea of injustice you cannot Hold us back, we are half the population. You know, we are our future. And all Indian restaurants are closing in London because they don't have chefs. Will they hire women? No. Because our food is only good when it's free. No one will pay us. No one will pay us to cook. And I cannot live with myself. I, I I don't deserve the success, I do not deserve any of the money I have earned or anything if I do not use my time to speak for those whose voices I need to amplify, who are not as yet able to come to the spotlight. I use the time when the spotlight is on me to talk about them.
0: We've got 15 minutes left, 16, and I absolutely promise that I will give you people a crack um, because I can feel how much you're really responding to, I suppose. I mean, how great is she, right? Um, So, before I do that, um, I want to just... One of the things I find is really fascinating about you is that it was probably the toughest time in your life of feeling lonely and being in pain um, that drove you towards making the changes that have made you such a success. And I would just like to be... uh, I'm interested in hearing your reflection on the relationship that pain has to life and to love as well.
1: Yeah. I've actually never spoken about this publicly. Uh, I don't know you've been through this as well. I always I wrote this book in in the in pandemic, uh, when the borders came down. I didn't want this to be a memoir. But I was going through a much deeper grief. Uh, I was my brother was dying. But I didn't change the book. I let the book be a celebration of our childhood, an equal mention of Arif, who sadly passed away in December. This book has been written from a place of deep pain, of knowing that everything I'm writing here is over. When you lose a sibling, you lose your childhood, entire childhood. And, and I knew what the potential loss of Arif would have been to Amu. I wrote this book as a balm for her, that she could read in that all the stories of, of a childhood that was full of love of equality. I wanted her to know that she had treated me the same as my brother. That he had been, he could have been like in all families, this, you know, the blessed boy. And she never did all of that. And Arif got to see the book, my brother, and my mother. And he was so thrilled. I have this beautiful photograph of him hugging me, holding the book. And you have, there are some pictures of him in there. But also my sister. And I think that food is, a foundation on which you build hope. In times of great grief, this is is your anchor. And I hope none of you go through difficult times. But when you do, take care of yourself and heal yourself, feed, cook for others. And for those who can, share share your recipes with your loved ones. Because when you're gone, you're gone. And this book really has all of Amu's recipes, and she is here today, and I'm very blessed. But you don't have to have a book. But you know, your children and your grandchildren uh, will not be able to recreate your lovely fruit cake at Christmas. Your loss will be felt forever. And I think you know people don't understand this that you need to write recipes down. We were discussing this before, and I think that it's, it is very important. Food is a great healer. Food is also about memories and nostalgia i cook things that are in this book that arif ate who's very fussy very fussy eater and i had and i, I make them uh, and yes i know i'm crying now but i make them without tears because i i can't do that now because i wrote them down in his memory and to celebrate my mother
0: there is something so powerful about Tastes and sounds and aromas. I mean, I taste, if somebody makes me a piece of toast and uses butter and jam, it reminds me of my maternal grandmother because my mother just went with jam. But butter and jam, that little bit of salt from the butter, it's delicious. (laughs) Um, I will not countenance butter and peanut butter, though. That's, like, (laughs) wrong and sick and you people who do it. I have no time, <laughs> but and my maternal grandmother, who was my paternal grandmother, who was a terrible cook, like a famously terrible oh cook, God, yeah. just shocking. Um, she used to make sandwiches for my lunch that were multigrain bread, butter, tomato, white pepper, and salt, and that combination, delicious. Only nice thing she could make. Um, rest her soul. She was a lovely, very funny, excellent lady, but I've got the other granny to do the cooking. um, And that just, I don't know, it just triggers that recollection of her so powerfully and such a tiny, weird little thing, right? And I think when you do have a loss or, you know, like my brother died last year, so this is how we got talking about this, you feel those tastes, And you remember moments and you look at photographs and it feels like it's going to break your heart because it reminds you of what you've lost. But then also, I mean, it is the only thing that's certain in life is that you will lose everybody at some point, right? So um, it makes it more important to um, remember the stuff and to really value even the tiny things that you had and you didn't value at the time. I wonder what your mum... Because, like, the most beautiful line in this book... And, look, I mean, it's a a pleasure to read and also there's some really good recipes in there. Um, You were talking... You were writing about the biryani your mum made you the night before you flew off um, to the UK. And you said that layered into that biryani were the things that my mother couldn't say. And
1: I thought that was such a beautiful line... Yeah, because it's a generational thing, but it's an Asian thing as well. It's an Indian thing. My mother never hugged me, never told me she loved me, and she didn't communicate with affection that she would cook. She would cook, she would serve, and then watch me eat. And I think that in her food, I felt all those things, as I said, that she couldn't tell me. I felt, I felt loved. I felt valued. And so I was very surprised when I moved to Cambridge. I saw all these white families, people hugging their kids, kissing them, saying, I love you, sweetheart. I was thinking, wow. <laughs> <laughs> people, people do these kinds of things because all my mother did is cook for the three of us and, you know, just... We, we never talked about love. It was never done. We left home with all these words unsaid. And it's still unsaid. Well, apart from this. Yes. <laughs> from her side. But I think that she, she has, she's got a lot better. And she, she was very, very happy with the book and it was very emotional. And the fact that everybody in my family was together was a big celebration. But uh, I've always communicated affection to her. Uh, but she never did. And she doesn't as much as mm. I would want her to. But it's fine. She gives me biryani. I'm okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. I promise you're allowed to ask questions now. Um, so just pop up and approach the microphone um, if you've got a burning... Oh, hello, lady with a bag.
2: Yes, hello. I've got ladoos in there for you. So.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I'm very touched. Even before the thing, someone, I mean, has sent me food. Uh, yeah, it, it's... I'm, I'm really touched by the generosity. But yeah, do Yes, please ask your question. Now,
2: Gunjan over here. Yes. Um, I know you said... I don't know how I'm going to even say all of this without crying. I know you said that um, your goal is that uh, women will look at you and be learn from your experiences. Um, you don't have to die for all of that to happen. <laughs> you can look at me. Um, in 2019, when your Netflix show came out, um, I was in the middle of um, running a business that I thought I will have to give up because I have a one-year-old son now. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> after that came out, I just, yeah, I, I thought I could fight for my dreams. And I went ahead, open a restaurant, um, which is really successful now. Um, I still CC my husband in all emails I send, even though he's not part of the business because <laughs> I, I hear... Everything that you said really resonates with me. Uh, but I just want to thank you for being a role model. Every girl deserves a hero, and thank you for being mine. <laughs> thank you.
0: Can you tell us? Can you tell us exactly where your restaurant is and what's called?
2: <laughs> it's called Flyover. It's here in Redfern. Please go. Yes. I know you've written this book for your mum, and now as a mother, like I've looked up to you as a business owner, um, and I've made a lot of my decisions thinking if Asma can, I can. Um, And thank you. Like I, I don't know how you did it without having a role model of your own. Um, I did
1: it for you, and I did it for everybody. Thank you so much. Gunjan. No, thank-,
2: thank you. Thank you. Um, as a mother, I want to know like, you know, when you're so thick into your business, I don't have time to cook for my son now, even though I cook for everybody else. And I feel so selfish for doing that. And you've taught me a lot about having a vision and going for it. Tell me that my son's going to be okay as well. He will be absolutely okay.
1: <laughs> he will be absolutely okay. And he will be so proud of you when you become this amazing. Restauranter with, with your flyover restaurants everywhere. Do not ever beat yourself over this. I didn't feed my kids, they're perfectly fine, they still love me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Just now hand your... over your food. Oh, come on. <laughs> I you. A...
0: Thank you. Oh, thank
1: you. <laughs> it's a lot of food, yes. This is the first time someone has given me food on... (laughs) Thank you very much, Gunjan. That must feel pretty good. You don't have to give me food to ask the question. (laughs) (laughs) Just clarifying as as nobody else is approaching the mic.
0: (laughs) That's okay. Well, no-one can top that. Like, I mean, that's pretty great. Like, it's a hard act to follow. Uh, Okay, so... um... She's got... We've got one person. Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry, I don't have any food. It's okay. Uh, Sit down. I, I, should have, I should have gone after her. I mean, should have gone before her. Um, so, uh, firstly, um, congratulations on um, being on Top Chef uh, in the most recent season. Uh, that was a pretty amazing challenge that you did uh, with the Bali challenge, and we really enjoyed watching it. Um, now, my question to you is, uh, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of people, South, South Asian people will feel this, but what's your comfort food? You know, when you, you're here in Australia, but when you get home, do you have a comfort food that
1: reminds you of your childhood? Yeah. I, I, I love paratha. I eat paratha all the time mm. uh, with sugar. So, yeah, that's my comfort food. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for asking, Krasil. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've made me cry.
0: You, we're all in tears. <laughs> I think I've cried more in this session than I ever have at a writers' festival thing everywhere. So, thank you. But actually, I know this might be a little odd, but I'm just wondering. Suddenly, you're in Cambridge, and the, the chairs and the husband and everything, and then suddenly you're in London. So, how did? Where's the? Where's your husband? How did? How did he deal? <laughs> he hasn't actually <laughs> noticed that she's moved out. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's just wondering why you've gone and there are all the chairs. But how did? <laughs> how did? Wh- where's he in all of this? How did? Has he supported you? How, how did? Did did you commute from Cambridge to London uh, every day? No,
1: we, no, we we moved. And you've got to make this super fast because I've let this go over. and yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. in trouble. Okay. No, okay, no, 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 it's not you. Jess. So, it's like, so the thing is that, one, I'm still married to him. And more amazingly, he's still married to me. <laughs> and, uh, so we moved from Cambridge to London as a family because Mushtaq left university, moved to London. And he has not was not supportive. When he found out that I wanted to cook, he told me that it was a really bad idea. I did really well in law school. He said, you know, you want to make a difference to women's life, stay in the law, you'll never make it as a food business, you'll not make an impact how wrong he was. And, <laughs> but then when I, I didn't have money, he gave me £185,000, his entire life savings. Wow. And he would not, he's, he's better than my mom. He just gave me the money I didn't speak. <laughs> so so he, you won't find him anywhere in, in any public thing. He doesn't go anywhere with me. And he will never say that he's proud of me. He doesn't say that he thinks I'm good on anything. He doesn't necessarily like my food. Give me the money. Show me the money. That's great. <laughs> Will you please thank us,
0: Makan? You are a magical woman and I loved that I got to meet you. Thank
1: you. Yeah, on your feet. Thank you.
2: <laughs>
1: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.